welcome to From the Bastille to Berlin, a podcast about the Western world in an age of ideology, Episode 5, Common Sense. In the last two episodes, I have flown through the history of England and Scotland and their various wars and rebellions up to 1745 at breakneck speed. But in this episode, I'm going to start applying the brakes because we're really closing in on the real beginning of the main story. It's going to be less than 50 years from the fall of the Jacobites to the rise of the Jacobins, and there's an important event involving a few Americans in a harbor full of tea that we don't want to pass over too quickly. But before we get into that, it's worth looking at the cultural climate of the New Order. If you can remember back to last time, you might recall me mentioning that the Scottish Parliament, in one of the best business deals since the Dutch purchased Manhattan Island for $24, voted to merge with England to form the Kingdom of Great Britain. However, at the time, no one realized just how good a deal it would be. After all, Scotland was a cultural and economic backwater. The northern highlands were full of smelly highlanders raiding each other and occasionally revolting, while the southern lowlands were full of dour Calvinistic Presbyterians who were always on about thrift and hard work. And it had even less to offer after a failed attempt to establish a colony on the Isthmus of Panama, known as the Darien Scheme, wiped out a quarter of the Scottish economy in one fell swoop. Yeah. However, under the surface, Scotland had a few things going for it, and the most important of these was an educational system. The Scots, as I said, had an established Presbyterian church which held to teachings associated with the French theologian John Calvin. One of the distinctives of John Calvin's brand of Protestantism was an emphasis not just on preaching, but on putting the Word of God, the Bible, into the hands of ordinary people. The trouble was, even when the Bible had been translated into English or broad Scots, it turned out that most people had to have it read to them because they were, well, illiterate. This presented a problem for a religious establishment whose goal was to make sure that everyone was minding their theological P's and Q's. So throughout the 17th century, various Scottish parliaments tried to mandate that every parish should have a school. But there was a slight snag in this as well. You see, there were all these pesky civil wars that kept getting in the way. And actually, Scotland had more of them than England did. For nearly three decades, Scotland was a war zone, both highland and lowland. First they fought the royalists, then they twice switched sides and tried to support the Stuarts. And finally, the period of the Restoration is known in Scotland as the Killing Time. You can guess why. It was a dark period when supporters of the National Covenant were brutally suppressed by Stuart loyalists. Thankfully, the Glorious Revolution brought peace and, most importantly, Presbyterianism back to Scotland. So in 1690, the Scottish Parliament was able to pass yet another law that said that every parish had to support a schoolmaster as well as a clergyman. And this time, there was enough stability that it worked, with the result that within a century, Scotland would have a literacy rate that would be the envy of the world. And then, of course, there were the universities. As you may know, early modern England had only Oxford and Cambridge, but poor little Scotland had no less than four universities at this time, Edinburgh, Glasgow, St. Andrews, and Aberdeen. While all of these were smaller than either Oxford or Cambridge, the 18th century would see them expand considerably due to the influx of cash from the new trading fortunes being made in Glasgow. Speaking of trading fortunes, the Act of Union had opened up new markets for Scottish merchants and investors. 
The 18th century was a time of mercantile capitalism, when government policy was that domestic trade was best and that imports should be limited, but exports should be maximized. By the early 18th century, a new trade system was developing and the Act of Union happened just in time for the Scots to get in on the ground floor. You see, the developing plantations of the Caribbean in North America had a problem. Too much land and not enough labor. Meanwhile, there were barrels of cash to be made selling the new fashionable luxury goods produced in those areas, sugar and tobacco. So the Scottish merchants came up with a novel solution. Buy slaves in West Africa, sell them in the West Indies, buy tobacco in North America, and rake in the cash once you got it home. Plus, you could also smuggle wine and rum and engage in predatory lending practices to Virginia planters on the side. It worked so well that within half a century of the Act of Union, Glasgow went from a sleepy port and market town to one of the richest cities in the kingdom. And its merchants gained the nickname of Tobacco Lords, and they were throwing money around like it was going out of style. The thing was, the Scots merchants didn't go in for country houses and parks the way the English did. Your average Tobacco Lord wasn't a wannabe member of the gentry. He was a good Calvinist who believed in the value of hard work, not hunting and charging Lent as a laird might. So while his somber garments might now be silk and not wool, he wasn't buying up the countryside and building a huge manor house. Instead, he was spending his morally dubious profits building up the community. This is the era when all of those granite, classical, and Palladian houses and churches were being built in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and you can see them there today. But while the tobacco lords might not have believed in large country estates, these men definitely believed in education and the power of knowledge. So they began endowing chairs at the universities in the traditional subjects like philosophy, theology, and law. But they also endowed chairs in the latest scientific study of things like political economy, botany, medicine, and physics. And they were always interested in using this research to make their own businesses more efficient. And being good Scotsmen, one of the first industries they decided to improve was the whiskey industry. In the 1750s, a group of whiskey distillers hired a medical doctor and scientist named Joseph Black to do experiments with boiling and condensation at Glasgow University. Distillation had been around for centuries, but these whiskey producers were getting steamed up about the high cost of fuel, so they called for Dr. Black's expertise. He did some careful experiments about how much energy it took to freeze, boil, or condense water, and he noticed something odd. It took more energy to boil a pot of water completely into steam than it did to simply bring the water up to boiling temperature. And he also noticed that it took the exact same amount of energy to melt ice completely as it did to boil water off completely. He determined from this that the various states of matter don't simply have regular heat, but also contain a kind of hidden energy, which he called latent heat. Of course, this boiled down to more cost-effective methods for distilling, but it also had other interesting implications. In particular, one of Black's assistants used these theories to improve a more recent invention that involved in harnessing latent heat to create usable energy. This apprentice's name was James Watt, and his name is now synonymous with energy because it was he who first built a steam engine that could be applied on a broad scale, jump-starting the Industrial Revolution. But of course, the Industrial Revolution would never have happened without new management techniques. And these were being taught at the University of Edinburgh by an expert in political economy named Adam Smith. In The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, 
Smith laid out the advantages of a new system for industrial production. The basic observations in Smith's work are taken both from the emerging industries of his own day, as well as a deep reading of history, and in particular, the notes of Louis XIV's finance minister, Stephen Colbert, sorry, John Baptiste Colbert. The first principle is a simple one. Industries are more productive as more of the work is specialized. Two men doing one job each are more efficient than two men doing both jobs independently. And this process can be extended even further. Plus, the new ways of doing finance made it possible to make money work for you in multiple industries to promote this kind of efficient optimization of labor and create prosperity for more people than ever. The big obstacle, however, is the state, or rather state policies about things like imports, high taxes, and short-sighted economics. If governments could just be persuaded to implement free trade policies, it would lead to economic ties that would not only promote growth, but also prevent wars by making a declaration of war against a trading partner fiscal suicide. Trade restrictions for Smith create unnecessary conflict. The best policy is for the government to let the market be, for the most part, and to invest in infrastructure to allow economic growth. Smith's ideas were part and parcel of a larger movement that historians now call the Scottish Enlightenment. In a few episodes' time, I will discuss the larger Enlightenment, but I think now the best time to discuss the aspect of it that had the most significant effect on the Scottish Enlightenment, the rise of the new science. Once again, it's time to talk about the 17th century. Gutenberg's invention of the printing press had allowed for the proliferation of information as never before. Across Europe, libraries were springing up not just in the homes of the ultra-rich, but also among the gentry and even the rising middle class. Printers were bringing out new editions of the classics, and in particular, the old scientists. And by the early 17th century, people had started to notice something. Their observations didn't always match up with what Aristotle and other ancient sources agreed was the case. In particular, a number of folks had started to notice some peculiar things with regard to the trajectories of projectiles. You see, in Aristotle's day, a lot of theorizing about motion had to be done by conjecture, since the equipment wasn't available to get consistent results on projectile trajectories. So he had to just reason it out. Except that now, with the advent of reasonably accurate cannons, the operators of these new superweapons started to notice that the projectiles seemed to be arcing, which Aristotle said was impossible. Well, that blew a hole in that theory. And ballistics engineers weren't the only ones exploding what everyone knew. An observant medical student from Pisa began to notice some peculiarities about the swinging of pendulums, and started doing a series of experiments on motion, which eventually got him appointed as a professor of mathematics. The man I'm talking about is, of course, Galileo Galilei, who went on to build more advanced telescopes that could, among other things, help unscrupulous merchants learn which ships were about to arrive and invest accordingly. Unfortunately for him, he then began theorizing that the Earth went round the Sun, and unlike earlier heliocentric theorists like Copernicus, he did so in a way that thumbed his nose at the ecclesiastical authorities he was trying to convince, and so got himself silenced by the Church, not so much for his theory as for the fact that he was a jackass about it. Podcast footnote. I was surprised to learn recently that the word donkey was invented in the 18th century. Before that, there was only the ass, which began to be replaced by the later term because of its use as an increasingly rude pejorative as a stupid or boorish person. I have no idea how the word then became to be used for the posterior region of the human body, but jackass still means a male donkey, and it even appears in a Pinocchio. 
If Walt Disney can use it in a children's cartoon, I hope I can use it in an ostensibly clean podcast. End podcast footnote. At any rate, all of these questions about the old authorities were leading philosophers to take a hard look at the methodologies that they had used. It should be noted that in the early 17th century, there wasn't yet a hard distinction between a philosopher and a scientist, or, as they were called then, a natural philosopher. And many academics dabbled in both. For example, Sir Francis Bacon, who was a jurist and politician who wrote extensively on the scientific method in his spare time. His approach to the new science was ruthlessly pragmatic. Theories should be accepted insofar as they accord with observed phenomena demonstrated by experiment. And in order to do this, the new scientist has to discard the so-called idols of the mind, preconceived notions, the tendency to impose order rather than to discover it, and equivocal usage of technical terms. But most of all, science must confine itself to natural phenomena rather than metaphysics. The other figure worth mentioning here is René Descartes, mathematician and philosopher. Descartes, in addition to inventing those grids you hated in high school algebra, was determined to place all of human knowledge on a rock-solid footing. So he began his philosophy with a method of radical doubt. Famously, he reasoned that if he could find something solid that was impossible to doubt, that it could serve as a foundation for all human knowledge. His conclusion was that this foundation is the existence of myself as a thinking thing. After all, who is doing the doubting if not a doubter? From this, Descartes reasoned out a number of conclusions to varying degrees of success, but the one that got a lot of people excited was his development of mathematics. You know, that stuff you hated in high school. And in particular, he created the system of coordinates to map equations that has been the bane of many a high schooler's existence ever since. But Descartes wasn't the only one. The 17th century saw a number of breakthroughs in a field that had been almost static since the ancient Greeks, and toward the end of this period, two mathematicians, probably independent of one another, developed a theory that helped those physicists create a theory of universal gravitation. These two were, of course, Gottfried Leibniz and Isaac Newton. Now, Newton is a strange figure here because he belonged in many respects to the old world. Not only was he an amateur theologian and expert in mysticism, but he was a practicing alchemist who spent a lot of his time interpreting biblical prophecy and attempting to turn lead into gold, not to mention inventing fig bars. Okay, that last part's a joke. But seriously, what's really odd, though, is that the mathematics of motion, this whole new branch of physics that he basically created out of whole cloth, was his hobby. And so it was in his free time that he worked out a theory of universal gravitation that tied together a lot of previous theories and ended up solving a bunch of problems that had plagued Galileo, among others. Again, I'm not going to go into the details of this, because really what's important here is the idea of Newton. It's not so much the man himself, but what he discovered and the way that his person sparked the imagination of Europe. His accomplishment was enormous one theory that united over a century of experiments and observations in one mathematical model. It completed the so-called Copernican Revolution and made the inventions that followed possible, since they all relied on Newtonian mechanics. But even more, it gave the intellectuals of the day hope that eventually other questions could be solved in a similar way. The philosophers of the next century would all attempt to do for the questions about human knowledge that Descartes had posed what Newton had done for physics. The poet Alexander Pope expressed what many felt at the time. Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and there was light. 
And despite Newton's own theological proclivities, intellectuals were beginning to turn from theology to a scientific study of human abilities for the solution to human problems. Again, here is Alexander Pope. Know then thyself, presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. And no one took that up like the figures of the Scottish Enlightenment. We've already had a hint of this turn toward the study of human action in Adam Smith, but the two thinkers who most took up Pope's challenge in Scotland were Lord Kames and David Hume. Lord Kames was a judge on Scotland's High Court of Session, who in his spare time, again, many of these are just hobbyists, he studied the development of human societies. His belief was that all people are equal basically equal inability, and that societies make human development possible. From this starting point, he formed a theory of the rise of civilization that would be influential in the emerging philosophy of history. But Keynes was also convinced that institutions had a duty to advance that development, using the principles of logic and ethics. And he himself took this philosophy into his decisions as a judge, most notably in the 1772 Joseph Knight case, Kames wrote the majority opinion that slavery could not be recognized under Scottish law, and therefore any slave was free upon setting foot on Scottish soil. He didn't just write about human equality, he put it into practice in the law. Meanwhile, he had a distant cousin who I just mentioned, David Hume. Hume was more interested in those questions of human knowledge that Descartes had written about. The dominant theory in 18th century Britain was known as empiricism. This is the idea that knowledge about the world is primarily gained through sense perception. Things that you directly see, hear, taste, or touch are the things that you know about. Hume's philosophy, though, took this approach to its logical conclusion. In particular, Hume scrutinized ordinary influence to see whether you could substantiate the claim that the cause of an effect can be determined by logical analysis of a sequence of events. Okay, let's break this down a little bit, because that uh, sounds really pretentious. So, here's an example. When you do experimentation to determine what caused something, it depends on creating identical circumstances multiple times. The problem is, if you use strict logic, you can't conclude that just because Y followed X in the past, it will do so in the future. So let's take a pool table. I see the Q hit the eight ball, and the eight ball moves on a certain trajectory. However, since I cannot logically expect that the future is going to be identical to the past, I can't count this event as evidence that the Q caused the eight ball's move. And no matter how many times I see this happen, I am still unwarranted in my conclusion. It is only preconceived notions and superstitions that could lead me to conclude that the cue ball is causing the movement of the eight ball. Well, that certainly throws a wrench in science, doesn't it? Or so Lord Kames thought when he read his cousin's work. So Kames turned to a friend of his, a librarian and clergyman at the University of Aberdeen named Thomas Reed, to sort out this problem and rescue scientific knowledge. So Reed took a close look at Hume and Descartes and others, and concluded that they were ignoring significant aspects of knowledge by privileging certain sources. But further, they themselves had to abandon their methods if they didn't want to get hit by a passing cart. From the starting point of practical reason as a basis for knowledge, Reed developed what is known as the philosophy of common sense. Unlike Hume, Reed was a parish clergyman, and so wasn't just staying in his study writing. 
Rather, he was rubbing shoulders with farmers, fishermen, and tradesmen constantly. What relevance did Humean or Cartesian skepticism have to the sorts of knowledge that these people had to deal with? Reed's conclusion is none at all. To understand human knowledge for Reed, we have to take stock of what sorts of powers of understanding humans have, and we cannot arbitrarily limit such understanding to the sorts of beliefs that educated aristocrats and academics might have. According to Reed, every human is designed to know and understand the world around him or her, and it's the philosophers who have been confused by preconceived notions such as the idea that one should begin by doubting everything. Of course I'm simplifying here, but the argument was powerful enough that Hume himself admitted that he struggled to answer it. This idea of common sense goes back to the medieval idea of a census communis given by God, but in the Scottish Enlightenment it took a distinctly populist turn. It meant that ordinary people had a right to think, not just about philosophical questions, but about the public good and in the educated society of 18th century Scotland, they did just that. I'm going to close this episode with a summary of this attitude by the Scottish poet Robert Burns, and apologies, by the way, for my atrocious pronunciation of broad Scots. Is there for honest poverty that hangs his head on a lat? The coward slave we pass him by, we dare be poor for a lat. For a that and a that, our toils obscure and a that. The rank is but the guineaed stamp, the man's the god for a that. What though on hemly fare we dine, we're hod in grey and a that. Give fools their silks and knaves their wine, a man's a man for a that. For a that and a that, their tinsel show and a that. The honest man, though e'er se poor, is king o' men for a that. What Burns is getting at is this idea of the equality of people, regardless of class or education or wealth. People are equal. A man's a man for that. He's still a person. He still has value. So next time we're going to see how this Scottish idea about the rights and value of the ordinary opinions of ordinary citizens is going to play out across the Atlantic in a land built on the ideals of free trade and common sense that we saw in this episode. See you then. Oh!